Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hi, this is Louise Jensen and I play Leela on Doctor Who, well, back when God was a boy. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the cheeky task of discussing in story order all the Doctor novelizations, because faces, cheeks, you know. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally cheeky three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Like the win, and I am calm, resonant, and mature. I put on my <laughs> resume anyway. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, 
just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you have divided them evenly between two tribes on two sides of a time barrier, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we would like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lamy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with Tom Baker's third season to discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Face of Evil. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Face of Evil, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Chris Boucher that aired from 1177 to 12277, published by Target Books in January 1978. As of this recording in April of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 126 pages. This would have been the story that people were waking up from a hangover the night before to watch, so it must have been very interesting. <laughs> There are two new names to be aware of starting with this book. One we will encounter two more times, and the other we'll be lucky enough to be hearing about for a while. This is the first of three stories written by Chris Boucher, all of which would air in 1977, and all of which would feature Leela, the new companion that he helped to create, named strangely enough after the Palestinian terrorist Leila Khaled. In fact, if you remember that the original name of the race that created the Daleks was Khaled's, you get a Doctor Who twofer there. Born in 1943, Boucher would later go on to become the script editor for Terry Nation sci-fi series Blake 7, and would script edit The Bill and Bergerac. He will also write the next story, The Robots of Death. This is because he was the only writer familiar with the new companion who makes her first appearance in the story. The other important name to remember is that of the lovely Louise Jameson, who plays Leela. Born on April 20th, 1951, which means she will have celebrated her 70th birthday by the time this episode goes up, so happy birthday, Louise. Jameson trained at RADA and spent two years with the Royal Shakespeare Company, also appearing in various TV shows such as Emmerdale Farm and, much to my surprise, Space 1999. I just finished rewatching the first season for my YouTube channel, That 70s Review, and I completely missed her. She was in Mission of the Darians. That's one of my favorite episodes, and I didn't even know she was in it, so this is news to me. It was her casting as Leela that really put her on the map, even though the character herself is considered controversial by some, one of them being Tom Baker at the time. The idea of a savage traveling with the Doctor harkens back to Robert Holmes' idea of having an Eliza Doolittle type of character whom the Doctor would then teach over the course of their time together. Sadly, Holmes being Holmes, he also wanted to go with a character that would be, as he put it, Raquel Welch in the jungle. <laughs> this included a very low-cut costume that brought a lot of criticism from feminists at the time because it was a naked ploy, <laughs> see what I did there, to keep the dads at home watching the show. She originally also wore very dark makeup, though they luckily decided not to continue doing that. That being said, Jameson has been called by no less than the Radio Times, quote, one of the most naturally gifted actresses ever to play a companion, unquote. Sadly, 
Tom Baker objected to having a half-naked companion who used weapons and violence, though, to be honest, he objected to having a companion at all, and made Jameson's tenure on the show less than welcoming at times. As Jameson told me herself in an interview in our 2019 Christmas special, he has since made amends to her. And then he apologized. He did. And you know, he was, he was tearing up during really that. Yeah, he was. And from that moment on, we've been the best of friends. That's terrific. Isn't it extraordinary mm-hmm. that that can happen? Because I, we didn't part well. No. He wasn't. He didn't want Leela in the show. Yeah. And that just overflowed into not really wanting me there. That is a shame. It is a shame. Like he had wonderful chemistry. That's well, fine. he's a marvellous actor. Yeah. I think we always had respect for each other's work. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, whatever conflict was going on off camera caused a certain dynamism on stage, as it were. Right. So I, I don't think the work ever suffered, but I think the atmosphere in the rehearsal room did. And they are still working together, reprising their roles for the Fourth Doctor audio adventures for Big Finish. We'll talk more about her post-Doctor Who career when we get to her last story. Leela originally was not meant to be a companion, by the way. She was meant to be one of those one-off characters that we talked about as a stand-in for a companion, and the new companion would have been introduced in the last story of the season, which takes place in Victorian England and is written by Robert Holmes. When the decision was taken to make her a companion, the director auditioned several actresses, including Pamela Salem, who Allison is familiar with, who in this story would provide one of the voices of Zoannan. Sorry, I'm familiar with her how? She read the audiobook for The Hand of Fear. Oh, yes. Oh, she did a terrific narration. Yes, and she almost was Leela. Ah. But instead, they made her one of the voices for Zoannan, and she would appear in person in the next story. So we will see a character that she ends up playing. One other interesting thing to note. Someone on the production team got it into their heads that the name Leela meant dark-eyed beauty, which I think it does. So Jameson had to wear red contact lenses to turn her blue eyes brown. These were intensely uncomfortable for her. They gave her tunnel vision the whole time that she was playing the character. But luckily, the incoming production team found a way to get rid of them in the coming season in a very interesting way. More on that when we get to it. Allison, you said that it's your turn to read the back cover. (laughs) It is. And then the whole time I was actually reading the Wikipedia entry on Layla Khalid as well, who I was not familiar with. Before you said terrorist, I said, well, sometimes that word is tossed around too easily. And like, no, no, she's the first woman to hijack an airplane. That is definitely a distinction. (laughs) Uh, Although did not kill anyone while doing so. But it's yeah, still totally hijacking an airplane. I'm getting ahead to the content of the story in some ways. So that is both impressive and what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> All right, so... Setting the controls for Earth, the Doctor is surprised when the TARDIS lands in a primeval forest. Has the Tracer gone wrong, or has some impulse deep in his unconscious mind directed him to this alien planet? In investigating the forest, the Doctor meets and assists Leela, a warrior banished from her tribe, the Sevateem. Through Leela, it gradually becomes apparent that the constant war between the Sevateem and the Tesh has been instigated by the god they both worship, Zoannan. Zoannan, an all-powerful computer, is possessed by a desperate madness, a madness that is directly related to Doctor Who, that causes Zoannan to assume the voice and form of the Doctor, a madness that is partly caused by the Doctor and that only the Doctor himself can rectify. The Doctor must not only do battle with Zoannan, but also must escape from the savage practices of the Sevateen and the technically mind-controlling destructive impulses of the Tesh. 
which is interesting modifier placement. Technically, it's mind-controlling and destructive. <laughs> it's just a little mind-controlling and a little destructive. Yeah, just a tad. By the way, to our listeners, just in case you got a little worried about that mention of the tracer, it is not the tracer you think it is. That's all I'm going to say. I looked at that for a moment and thought, wait a minute, it's a little too early for that. So I didn't remember it being mentioned at all in the story. It is, briefly. And in fact, it's in the script because I rewatched the story and I was like, wait a minute, he doesn't mention a tracer. Yes, he does. But Tom Baker mumbles a line, so none of us noticed it. But it's capitalized on the back cover, and it's in the line when he's having his monologue at the very beginning talking about why the TARDIS went off course. But just so longtime fans know, it is not the tracer you think it is. The tracer is in another castle. <laughs> All right, so first impressions on this one. Dalton, what were your first impressions? Well, looking at the cover, I was getting some Lara Croft vibes from uh, from this quote-unquote savage. And then the doctor's giving me uh, Indiana Jones vibes. That, that, <laughs> that hat doesn't speak to me the way that his hat usually does. It, it looks more like Crocodile Dundee's hat. So uh, <laughs> it's like a great mashup for me. But then reading the back cover, I was finding myself getting confused very easily. So we have these two tribes who both have some dealings with how I was pronouncing it was Zo- Zoanon, like QAnon. Fair enough. Um, Exanon, yeah. Uh, yeah, and now hearing you say Zoanon, now all I have is uh, Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac stuck in my head. Well, it's actually Rhiannon the singer who is the mad computer. <laughs> Her yes. all along. That computer has sold a lot of makeup and underwear. <laughs> well, at least you don't have, you know, meet you all the ways of Anne on, yeah. Because I have that going through my head. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so yeah, reading reading the back cover, I was getting a little confused. It's like, okay, we have two tribes. They both have some dealings with Zoanon, but also the doctor has... A, something to do with this maybe it's confusing is it really the doctor was kind of one of my first impressions which kind of ended up being true yeah i wasn't i wasn't quite sure where this was going other than we're we're kind of on another jungle planet with some probably some technological bits going on that are going to interfere with the doctor and whatever's actually going on here okay and Allison, what about you, first impression? Well, I did, uh, once again, an audio book. Well, one of uh, Tony's great underground audio books for the blind. Um, and this was a much more professional production, which was quite good. But in some ways, I was a little disappointed that it was so polished because I enjoyed uh, so much the last one, uh, which was similar because the last one uh, I think that I heard in that form was one with the Two Domed Cities. I'm trying to remember the title. Genesis of the Daleks which had some similar motifs in it. So I experienced none of what Dalton saw with the blurb on the back of the book and the cover. I was in an interface where I couldn't adjust the speed of the audio or skip forward. So what I experienced was the reading of the copyright page and the table of contents. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was rather dull. And then just straight into a Terrence Dix prologue, which even for Terrence Dix murder prologue was 
quite dark and brutal. So that was my plunge straight in impression of it. I didn't know what to expect in terms of content of the story. It just it began because the face of evil could, the title could have been put on any story that we've read, arguably. Okay, well, then that leads me to the big question. Did you realize that Leela was going to be the new companion? I expected that she would be by within the first couple of chapters to the point where I was going to be very annoyed if she stayed dead when she died. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I thought that the story might turn out to be she was proposed as a new companion that was overruled and this is the only story. Mm, okay, Dom, how about you? No, I, I did not foresee her becoming a companion. I thought, like you had mentioned before, that she was she was going to be one of these strong secondary characters, but only going to be in this story. So even up until the end, clear up until the very end, I thought there's no way that this character is going to be brought along with the Doctor. And even when she got into the TARDIS, I thought somehow the Doctor is going to get her out and he will be on his <laughs> way. But nope, not what happened. Didn't happen. <laughs> and Terrence Dix sends her off with a exclamation mark, in fact. <laughs> I think it's both silly and charming for Terrence Dix to have that last line. And he goes off into space with a new companion! Yes. It's like, oh my goodness, Terrence. Goodness. But yeah, that was much my experience when I first saw the story. I thought, oh, this is an interesting person, but is she actually going to go with him? And sure enough, she does. And oh my goodness, it's quite amazing. Like I said, I expected it from pretty early on, but I've expected that before and been wrong. Well, I think the only reason why we wouldn't expect it is because the new series had that series of specials with David Tennant having actual companion stand-ins that didn't join him, including one that did die in the course of the story. But of course, it was Kylie Minogue. She was never going to join the cast. <laughs> no. And the Twelfth Doctor obviously has the one person who does want very much to come with him, and he turns her down on account of the fact that she's a soldier, which I think is just stupid. I think that character would have been awesome, in fact. Yeah. But it's mainly because of characters like Leela that those more high-concept characters don't often get used. That being said, the next, let me think, let me count off on my fingers, one, two, three, four. The next four companions we see are going to be high-concept characters. Okay. And then we'll finally get somebody from Earth again. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be really strange for a little while. Well, it's interesting that she does turn out to be human, just not from Earth. Yes, and that will also be a plot point in a later story, which I think is amazing. That's the other thing. Uh, at what point did you realize that she actually was human and descended from the survey team and not part of the indigenous population? I think once there was that line about the doctor noticing that the throne was part of an escape pod, basically the first mention that the doctor realizes that there have been humans here, I said, oh, wait. That's where they're going with this. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's pretty early on that the technology is described. Well, I forget, since I was listening to it, I didn't see the word Sevatim. I just heard it pronounced, and I thought it was a B instead of a V, so I guess I was hearing it in Hebrew. But if I had seen it, I think that would have been the first sort of overt thing, because there are very few words that have that sequence of consonants in them. S-V-T-N. And even hearing, I'm like, are they saying 17 or not? So... 
early on there were those indications. And we've seen stories like that before. Not just in Doctor Who, but in other sci-fis where the humans or the ship turn out to be from Earth. Yeah, it's meant to be a red herring, but it's not that big of one, especially when you get to that really well-done sequence where Terrence Dix describes them hitting the gong, which has the word survey team on it yes. that none of the 17 could read. Yes. And it's like, oh my goodness, that's really impressive. Well, let's launch into this then. We'll get back to talking about Leela, but let's talk about the story. First of all, where do we start? What do you think of it? I'm going to do exactly what I was not asked for and talk about the picture, because I didn't see it until right before we started recording when I asked you to send me the PDF, because there was a quote I remembered, and I wanted to look it up with the word search. I think it's one of the nicer covers myself. It is. It's interesting you were saying that it was criticized uh, for being a hoochie costume, because that is very easy to imagine, but this is an incredibly restrained cover relative to what is being portrayed and some of the pulp art from 70s covers. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it reminds me more of the sensibility of the first of the new Wonder Woman movies, where there are ostensibly skimpy leather outfits, but it's all about them being fighting outfits and not swimsuits. Mm-hmm. So this is not a hoochie picture at all. And the emphasis is very much on identifying physically with her rather than looking at her as an object. And it would have been really easy to have the doctor <laughs> turning slightly to the right, <laughs> doing kind of like a wink, wink. Oh, hey, checking her out. Um, and so it's actually very restrained and youth appropriate which i'm not used to in this uh, particular art style at all yeah it's not frank frazetta is it no no it's not even boris vallejo the amusing thing is is that i am hardwired apparently to associate these thick plants that are exotic plants from very hot climates with doctor's offices <laughs> So, <laughs> I will say it actually lessens to me the sense that they are in an exotic locale. <laughs> so Leela is sneaking around in animal skins in a doctor's office. Yes. That's what you're telling us. He's going to have a good look at those moles. He'll be able to examine oh them thoroughly. <laughs> but then related to that, so I, I was reading the uh, Leila Khalid wikipedia entry here and goodness you've already told me the title i've already forgotten it genesis of the daleks. genesis of the Do noun of the daleks uh, had, well had a similar setup we've, we've, we've of course read many stories with the setup where we have two warring factions but genesis of the daleks particularly emphasized the futility of the conflict between them and how neither was really benefiting from them and yet they identified so strongly with the conflict that was part of who they were as tribal groups i did wonder if this was supposed to be a specifically arab jewish allegory mm. even before you said she was inspired by layla khalid which would have things both for and against it in that it shows that there is no inherent difference that requires war and long-term conflict. But at the same time, she literally is a savage. If she is supposed to be uh, the stand-in Palestinian character, it's a pretty dark portrayal that the Sabbatim are supposed to be earthy savages and the Tesh are supposed to be wimpy and brainiacs. That's that's some kind of uh, gross, dark stuff there on either side. And, and I don't know how explicit he was being about that particular duality of people groups. Yeah, I don't think he was being quite that explicit because all I've been able to find out is that that's where her name came from, but I don't think that the character is necessarily inspired 
by that same person. That being said, yeah, there is this interesting idea of a tribe fighting another tribe. Well, and the reason I, I went with more of a, of a Jewish-Arab conflict is they specifically are monotheists who worship the same deity. Ah. Whereas in the the two domed cities, we didn't necessarily have that similarity of belief system. It was much more of a civic conflict. Oh, goodness. Now my mind is clicking over on the Tesh being so denying of the flesh and the possibility of them being more ultra-Orthodox, whereas the Psevatim, well, Leela and her fellow tribes members were darkened up with dark makeup, so goodness. I had not ever read that that way before. It may be there. I think you may be onto something there. And the Sevateam arguably had, I, I've got to stop talking about Gnosticism and Doctor Who, but had some explicitly Gnostic comments about the duality of the mind and flesh. What's the quote? This is actually why I asked for the PDF, so I'll look this up. Jintek gave a low ritual bow. I accept my fault and seek forgiveness. My mind and flesh, which should be two, were one. And the way was hid by blood, which is, like I said, much more Greek Gnostic dualism or Christianity. Yeah, now that you're reading that aloud, I'm, I'm definitely hearing it much more, come to think of it. Ooh, we, we went deep with this one fast, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Jumped in headfirst. So I looked at the picture and I liked the picture a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does seem to be somewhere along those lines because you may have noticed the script is very derisive of religion, which is something else that has been kind of controversial about the story among some fans. Yes, very Star Trek V. Yep. Why does God need a starship? Yes, and the original title that Chris Boucher wanted to use for it, and then both he and the producer realized it was way too pretentious, was The Day God Went Mad. Whoa. And it's like, yeah, that would not have fit with other Doctor Who titles. These days it would, but not at the time when they were doing The X of Y. In fact, I think this entire season is basically The X of Y titles. It is interesting that you do have this fascinating story that comes closer to hard sci-fi than just about anything we've gotten in Doctor Who previously. Where do we start with this one? I mean, apart from the Gnosticism, because obviously we need to unpack that as well. What stood out most to you about in this book? Usually when Terence Dix kills people in the prologue, it happens naturally or at the hand of monsters instead of humanoid creatures, in this case they turn out to actually be humans, having each other killed. And so Leela's father being thrown to the creatures was dark even for a Dick's prologue. And then pretty early on, she, I forget, I think this is actually before she encounters the Doctor, she picks off guards pretty quickly and casually, once again, for someone who is one of the heroes. Yeah, and even when she meets the Doctor, she ends up using the Janus Thorn on at least two people. Well, and I thought it was appropriate that he's shocked and horrified. It would have been strange and out of character, although we've seen this with the way Pertwee Doctor has written sometimes, for him to be casual about it. So it was absolutely appropriate and in character that he was shocked and appalled. Yeah, Troughton probably would have just not given a damn about it because he was pretty bloodthirsty himself. <laughs> yeah, the way that Leela is a little more bloodthirsty, a little more relentless and cunning with the way that she has to survive. You know, that kind of after the first scene, once she's been actually exiled and she has the two guards that have been sent to kill her, the way that she just kills one of them in cold blood just to survive and then 
her friend kills the other one just yeah it immediately kind of set this tone of survival and really it made the world feel more dangerous and and like something really tribal it made it feel like these people really had to scrape and fight for what they had and they even mentioned that the rulers of the tribe weren't decided by any kind of familial lineage or anything like that it literally was the person that took the throne and kept the throne was Mm -hmm. the one that was the leader yeah and we haven't had a culture like that in doctor who really up to uh, well since the very first episode come to think of it not since the tribe of gum way back in uh, an unearthly child we have not seen any group that was so caveman like as lila's tribe it's definitely the most savage culture we've seen in a while and in that sort of 70s dichotomistic concept of what a savage culture would be where in 70s sci-fi you either have a sort of casually violently hierarchical culture like this or as sort of the natural state of humanity or in 70s sci-fi you'll also see a um, very utopian pacifistic laterally organized society as well it feels like it's usually one of those extremes that so far as we can tell from ancient anthropology they're both quite extreme for what it was what would be typical yeah and she's also not the noble savage either i mean leela does have decency obviously and we'll see more and more of that as the stories go on but she's not the sort of savage that would necessarily let somebody go just because of higher means or purposes this is somebody who is definitely trained to survive and will do anything to survive and that's something that she's going to have to tamp down a bit when she meets the doctor it's also an unusual story in that at the end of the day there isn't a villain in it if there is a villain it's the doctor because the face of evil is literally the doctor's face and if as he says several times during the story and it's it bears repeating if he hadn't done what he did none of this would have happened in fact we don't get a story again like this until the new series when we get the two-part series finale of chris freckleson's first and only season of doctor who last time i was there i put it right no but that's when it first went wrong 100 years ago like you said all the news channels they just shut down overnight but that was me i did that there was nothing left in their place no information the whole planet just froze the government the economy they collapsed that was the start of it 100 years of hell oh my i made this work so it's an interesting thing to have happen where you have the villain suddenly not get killed at the end but become good but only after generations of horrible horrible things have happened and it's all the doctor's fault i thought we had seen like something like that before but i can't place it so maybe not mm. dalton do you remember something like that because I can't remember it being the Doctor's fault ever. Well, no, I'm thinking about a, a villain who reformed at the end of the story. Oh, oh, oh. No, I can't I can't think of one. Not counting in the Christmas special, those women who went off birth control. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'm not counting that as canonical. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, listeners, she's not talking about the Doctor Who Christmas special. She's talking about ours when we read stories from the annual, such as The Sinister Sponge. <laughs> do, you, do you know that there's an audiobook of that? Really? I'm 
intrigued because isn't part of the um, effect of the sponge like unearthly and undurable screeching noises? Yes, and I wonder if they did them. But yeah, yes, that actually could be interesting. There was an audiobook collection of stories from the annuals, and when I was looking for the audiobook for you, Alice, and I happened upon it. I was like, "Oh my god, we're gonna have to listen to this at some point." Maybe it'll be like the ring, and we just won't survive. We probably won't. <laughs> But hey, what do we do? Our, our hearing will be permanently impaired. <laughs> Possibly. How do we feel about the way the Doctor and Leela interact? We definitely get the sense that the Doctor doesn't particularly like her in a way that is consistent with what we've seen before with this Doctor and people in general. So I was thinking it was just how Tom Baker Doctor was, and maybe now it was just Tom Baker, you're saying? Well, <sighs> I, thought, I thought it was being portrayed as this version of the Doctor isn't that crazy about having companions, and maybe it's just Tom Baker wasn't crazy about having companions? It's Tom Baker okay. wasn't crazy about it, yeah. It, Tom Baker was particularly, he was not well behaved, shall we say. He has since apologized profusely. <laughs> I was going to say, I kind of picked up on some of that, too, though. It, it didn't feel natural. It didn't feel necessarily like the doctor was always trying to help Leela. He was trying to figure out what was going on, and she was kind of along for the ride. She would have these moments of insight that he was reasonably impressed with, which we've seen before with, I think, every doctor being surprised. Wait a minute, the companion just made a very keen observation. So we did have those moments as well. Yeah, and I think that's probably what led me to kind of feel like this person's not going to become the companion. Their relationship is kind of cold and kind of at arm's length, you know. She is a savage on this planet, and she's part of the tribe that's here, but that's not necessarily something that the Doctor is interested in exploring further. He was more interested in kind of figuring out what was going on with Zoanna, and, and Leela just seemed to be kind of part and parcel with figuring that out. But I thought she was going to be the companion because she is not written as one of Terence Six's usual bureaucrats or noble soldiers. I mean, she's kind of written as a noble soldier, but not quite how he writes that character. Well, remember, Terence Six is only translating the scripts that he's given. Even with Chris Boucher, who's a brand new writer to the show, this character is definitely not in the mold of any of the other characters that we've seen in the show. And you're right, she doesn't seem like a natural fit for a companion, but there is a spark there. There is a definite spark there, and if the role of a companion is to be having the doctor explain things to her and rescuing her, well, she doesn't fit that either, does she? Because she has to have everything explained to her, yes, but she doesn't need rescuing. Yeah. Most of the time, anyway. She does need uh, resuscitating. So she does need she rescuing does. once. Mm -hmm. Resuscitation, which includes a slap. Oh, yes, there is that. Have you really even been brought back to consciousness in Doctor Who if you haven't been slapped? <laughs> Do you, can you know you're alive if you don't have the sting on your face? Probably not. I tend to think, though, that there is a bit of warmth, especially when they first meet, when we get that first mention of her as the Doctor sees her. And I love how Dix actually is exercising a bit of restraint when describing her costume, probably because he hasn't seen it. 
because he describes her as a tall, brown-haired girl in a brief costume made of animal skins came herring through the trees. <laughs> brief hardly covers the costume, which hardly covers her either, of course. But He likes to describe characters explicitly in terms of how attractive they are. And he doesn't do that here with the opening characters. And sometimes he does it just with a female companion. Sometimes he'll do it with several, including some of the male characters. And these are much better descriptions than he usually gives. Yeah. There is that. Much more individual and evocative. Yeah. I mean, they're not five star, but for Terrence Dix, they're much more individualized. Well, what descriptions were you um, speaking of? You mean with Neva and with Caleb and Tomas? Yes, I'm thinking mostly of Leela, but let me see because... Yes, and Caleb as well. I guess we are told that Caleb has handsome features now that I look through this. I'm, I'm much more Team Tomas myself. Yes, I think I have my notes, youth group boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Who I thought was interesting that I think I have written down something like youth group boyfriend chickens out early, but then turns out to be more interesting than someone who chickens out is proven weak and is defined that way from there on out. Or someone who was sort of stone-jawed from the very beginning. I actually thought he had a nice arc for a, a younger person like he is supposed to be. Yeah, especially since even Leela doesn't blame him for not taking the challenge of the Horda. Because it's dangerous as fuck. And the only reason the Doctor is able to do it is because he learned from Liam Tell, of course. <laughs> Naturally. Naturally. There has to be a name dropped there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since I was listening to the audiobook, I thought it was going to be subtle, too. Oh, I learned from a great Swiss archer. You know, William Tell. Nudge, not like you couldn't wah, wah, just let wah. it be subtle. No. I see now that no. Horda is spelled H O R D A, but I just heard it as Test of the Hoarder and thought it was just going to be. A <laughs> I knew it wasn't going to be just full dresser drawers overflowing with, you know, single chopsticks and dead batteries and whatnot, but it was kind of like visualizing John Tesh throughout the book. I don't try to be juvenile. Oh my God. I just can't not be. <laughs> Me too. But every single time, I thought after the first three or four mentions, I would stop visualizing. And then I, I in my mind, it became that maybe Zoanna is actually Connie Selica. Oh. God. <laughs> did oh, not Lord. come to fruition. It could have been worse. We have, could have had a character named Yanni. Could could have been with that beautiful hair blowing. Mm -hmm. Oh Lord! <laughs> that thin, beautiful, wiry hair. Apparently, <laughs> sorry, I, it mystifies God. me why people are into Yanni's hair when there's it's so long. So much more to him. Well, <laughs> say, there's not a lot there, but uh, you went the other way. Well, it's not like he's cousin it or anything, but well, that's what I'm saying. Close, people talk about he? Yanni's hair. I'm like, it's not actually that much. Anyway, sorry. Uh, please feel free to remove an ending. <laughs> no, I think we'll keep that in. As far as where this fits in the continuity, how do we feel about how that's been placed? Because we don't get that explanation on screen. All we're told is that it is the fourth Doctor's face. He visited them earlier. There's no mention of Sarah Jane. It's like, ah, oh, okay. So Terrence Dix has to do the heavy lifting of figuring out where this visit goes. And sure enough, it's during the events of Robot. And the Doctor gets into the TARDIS at some point without the Brigadier and Sarah being able to stop him or knowing that he's gone. And while he is in this very changeable and mutable mental state of post-regeneration, he happens upon the Mordi expedition and decides to fix their computer, and it all goes horribly wrong. How well does that work for everybody? It made sense to me. It felt like 
and very impulsive move, but that seems to be the doctor every time we get a regeneration. Right after we see them come back, there's a lot of questioning and there's a lot of kind of figuring out who they are this time around, whether it's from their physical appearance or their personality. So it kind of made sense to me that, yeah, the doctor just was very much doing this on a whim and didn't really know what they were doing. And didn't really think about the implications of what they were doing and how that could possibly play out. Especially given that as much as we talk about the Time Lords not being interventionists and them supposedly leaving people alone, going to another planet and just going and... Cosmic AAA operator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm bored. Let's drive around and look for people who need rescuing. Right. So it, it, it made sense to me. It felt very much like kind of a, a teenager just impulsively doing something like that. I think we should also count our lucky stars that this particular story wasn't written later when continuity had set in. <laughs> because I have a feeling that in the hands of any other writer except for Chris Boucher, probably we would have seen Zoanne and manifesting the personalities of the first three Doctors. And it's like, uh, while that would have been interesting, it's much more interesting to have this computer actually going insane because it has no idea what it is or who it is that's that's a very interesting hard sci-fi concept that i'm very fond of yeah plus the literal who am i oh yes <laughs> there is that uh... by the way there's an interesting story behind that because for the longest time i thought that that cliffhanger where the voice of zoan and screaming who am i actually is delivered in the voice of a boy I have been told that it was some contest winner who won a contest to be in a Doctor Who episode, and that was essentially his cameo. And no, it wasn't. It's the voice of one of the pupils at the school where the director's wife taught. Mm. And yet it's still one of my favorite stories from that era, and that's one of my favorite cliffhangers, because you do have Tom Baker's voice, Pamela Salem's voice, whoever's playing young Zoan, and all these disparate voices shouting, no, no, who am I, who am I? And then suddenly, at the very end of the episode, you hear this little young boy's voice saying, who am I, who am I? And it's just incredibly chilling and touching all at the same time. I love the cliffhangers in this story. They're very different than they've been previously, but of course you can't really see that on the page. Mm, no. So why did I bring it up? <laughs> well, I mean, you could point out where they fall. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, one of them is Tomas being attacked by the invisible monsters and firing into the air and Tom Baker's crazed face appearing over him, which is just much more frightening than you think it would be. <laughs> the invisible monsters were giving me some kind of feelings of planet of evil since we're on this jungle planet again and granted in planet of evil it was that static electric whatever monster but just kind of the idea of these creatures that we don't really know what they are because they're invisible stalking around and i found the idea of the boundary that they had set up around the city 
that the Zoannan had to keep them out. Interesting as well, because it, it initially felt like a protective barrier, but in a way it was keeping them in. Mm-hmm. It worked both ways, because once we do find out that Zoannan's basically running a eugenics experiment, we see that, oh, well, they're trapped there. They're trapped there because they're the creatures, but that's the whole point. He didn't want them to leave. He wanted to be able to keep them there to select their genes and allow that to play out. And occasionally allows the tribe to try to attack so that he can call the numbers as much as he can. Yeah. Survival of the fittest, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which leads me to a point that still bothers me. The Tesh. We are told that the Tesh deny the flesh, which has its obvious implications. <laughs> yes, exactly, he. But we never see any female Tesh. How do they reproduce? Well, see, they're supposed to be smart, so there can't be any female. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually unclear on how successful Zoannan was supposed to have been with sort of time machine style two branches of humanity. And my impression was that Zoannan's success had not been that great. Ah. That they weren't that different. Like they hadn't really evolved. That he had been able to genetically select by altering their circumstances and creating a survival of the fittest situations for the seven team. But basically he had been able to breed them how he wanted, but they had not yet adaptively evolved. They hadn't had that sort of time frame yet along different lines. So I thought it was different from the time machine where we have two species with very different bodies, one vegetarian race, one race that exclusively eats the other, one lives above ground, one below ground. I didn't think we actually had that level of physical divergence yet. I see. So the doctor manages to interrupt this eugenics experiment before they turn into the Eloy and the Morlocks. Those are the two races from the time machine. That's that's what I thought. That it was just sort of more like you might have two human ethnic groups or even more two different sort of family lines where there there will be some differences, but not, not species level differences. But I'm not sure. Well, but the Tesh have extremely evolved telepathic abilities. Yeah, that's right. So like that would be something that would take generations and generations and generations. And I was never sure when they were doing it or Zoanna was doing it or assisting them. No, the Tesh have it themselves, but Zoannan has control of everybody. So I'm wrong. They actually have evolved differently. A bit. Probably not as far as they could go. The question about the Tesh's breeding, I guess, I hadn't thought about it, but possibly just since they're more technologically advanced or dependent upon technology, maybe, you know, they have test tube babies, maybe they clone, maybe there's something like that. I mean, none of that is said. It's all just, you know, speculation. So yeah, I don't know. And that would be a totally Doctor Who-like scenario to have some kind of horrific, you know, clone nursery or something. Yeah. Yeah, it really would. Maybe that would have been considered irredeemable for Zoanna. Well, Nothing that Zoannan's done is really redeemable, but it has resulted in not exactly two species, two races definitely of the same species who never existed that same way before. So if we're taking a really positive spin on it, two good things came out of Zoannan's madness, one being these two races of people on this unnamed planet and Leela, which I would say is an unqualified positive because, well, as you'll see, that character ends up being interesting in her own right, but not necessarily interesting in the show. I don't want to give too much away. (laughs) We're going to have her for a little while and I don't want to spoil any of the fun. 
What else do we like about this book? Or was there something that we disliked? <laughs> I just like some of the uh, the storytelling, I guess the, the world building and the mythologizing that they have for who the Doctor was and who the evil one is. There's a couple of scenes where they talk about the jelly babies and even Leela mentions that you do eat babies. <laughs> and then later there's a scene where the Doctor kind of is menacing some of the other Seventeen with the jelly babies to kind of frighten them <laughs> now drop your weapons or i'll kill him with this deadly jelly baby kill him then what kill him then i don't take orders from anyone i adore that scene yeah tony showed me some of these and they were <laughs> frightening <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the fact that she's heard that the evil one eats babies, and obviously that is true. It's just been morphed out of all recognition of the truth over generations, because I'm sure the doctor probably offered a member of the survey team a jelly baby. <laughs> and through a game of telephone, it's turned into this. The evil one eats babies and can kill you with a deadly jelly baby. <laughs> And if you eat enough of them, that's true. You will die of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's some brilliant scenes in there as far as that goes. I did expect Leela to probably become the companion, but I did not expect Zoanan to turn out to be so real and literal. To actually be an entity the priest communicated with. And if so, to not just be a person or alien who is manipulative, but a being that is non-physical and does think of itself in a kind of godlike sort of way. So Zoanan turned out to be much more legit than I expected. Yeah. I mean, still a manipulator, but not as cynical a manipulator as a Dalek pretending to be a god, for example. No. No, because that would be crazy. <laughs> One thing I have to admit that I'm not happy about, both in the original story and with the book, is that Neva's character arc gets lost very quickly. It's meant to be there, obviously. It's meant to be a true believer who is just broken when his faith is broken, and then comes out the other side and decides he's going to kill God and ends up being killed by God himself. But uh, the problem is he gets a lot of screen time towards the very beginning and then tapers off towards the end and then they bring him back for the finale. And it's really kind of unfortunate. I wish there had been more with that. This is one of those few stories that might have done pretty well as a six-parter, though I'd hate to see what that would look like in the uh, 70s. He, he felt like he was going to be one of those people that was vying for power in the tribe and was going to do anything he could to keep the power. And so the fact that he disappeared in the middle, yeah, it, it was like, where did he go? He seemed like he had a lot to do at the beginning. And then he just kind of disappeared. And then again, yeah, he's just goes crazy and decides to kill <laughs> to kill god so yeah it felt like well why why did he have so much to do at the beginning and then in the middle he just wisps away well the book does kind of have an underlying theme of why it's always dangerous to seek out too much power right because we get a lot of jabs that i read as political like in chapter three when leela says i just don't know what to believe anymore 
And the doctor says, that's a healthy sign. Never be too certain of anything, Leela. It's a sign of limited intelligence. And I really wish more people understood that now. But he also says something along the lines later, just before she almost kills him. He says, the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their view to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit their views which can be very uncomfortable if you happen to be one of the facts that needs altering. <laughs> Hello, 2020. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> In the last four years. It does seem to have that theme of it's never a good idea to overreach. Even if you're a computer that has godlike powers, you shouldn't try to be God. Even if you were a priest that has a hotline to God, you shouldn't try to lord that over other people, no pun intended. And even Caleb comes off badly because he's trying desperately and is ambitious to be leader of the tribe, and he's just not well suited to it. And also more the takes the path that I expected Eva would take of being interested mostly in holding on to power, where I, I usually like a true believer story in a, in a narrative like this to see where that takes a person It took him to, I guess, attempted deicide. But I thought that made sense, that he wasn't this the usual sort of trickster shaman character who is actually quite atheistic, that Neva really was communicating with Zohanan, and even though self-serving, wasn't purely fabricating this religion either, uh, did believe it in in some form, even if it was a distorted form, and took it personally when, as a servant of Zoanan, he felt misused. As well he should, because he has been absolutely misused. He's been a pawn the entire time. A very direct pawn in a very different way than even the Tesh, who apparently commune with Zoanan a little more often. He's absolutely being used. I'm just giggling because I'm reading my notes. Death to the traitor, Tesh! Death to the traitor, Tesh! <laughs> This music wasn't that bad. With like, <laughs> no, just I'm picturing them with an effigy of John Tesh. And I don't <laughs> look. I know it's not a style of music everyone enjoys. Yeah. But, well, so. nobody's <laughs> perfect, but that's overstating it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many good quotes in this book. Chris Boucher is very good when it comes to dialogue, and Dix is doing his best to recreate that and is even adding a few things, like the exchange between Leela and the Doctor about how they're going to get into where Zoannan is and the bridge through the barrier. And she says, is it up the nose? Certainly not. <laughs> it's over the teeth and down the throat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's just the bit uh, when the emergency lights come on and the Doctor straightened up and looked around, still the emergency lighting and something else he sniffed a smell of a smell of a smell <laughs> <laughs> and later on when he says you don't get us that easily you overground calculating machine yes <laughs> Yeah, it has some lovely moments. There's a line in here about one of the Tesh having super normal strength. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinarily average. I, I don't quite know what that's supposed to mean. Well, you can but... lift a briefcase like anybody else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a very odd adjective pairing there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, the other line I considered using to try to describe myself in the intro was alive with a kind of mad intelligence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I like to think I resemble that remark. <laughs> um, I, I, I thought that the most poignant moment for developing the doctor was he's trying to remember 
originally starting all of this. When he took a side excursion to try to fix this ship's computer and he accidentally caused all of this. And he asks, you know, or did I forget? I forget if I forgot or not. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that that actually was kind of poignant in that he is not sure if he did this as an act of hubris or not. And that that worked for me for this particular doctor who is so perennially distracted and or at least has an affectation of distraction. We're never sure if he's actually that distracted and thinking about something else or if it is just a sort of persona that he projects. And then I, I thought that was a nice way of describing maybe he's not sure either. Yeah, the the really poignant bit for me in this book, and it's something that Terrence Sticks adds because it's not in the televised version, is we get another mention of Sarah Jane and the doctor realizes something's missing. It's someone to talk to. It's specifically Sarah Jane. And he actually has a moment of regret of having had to take her home. And it's like, oh, so even Terrence Dix is having trouble letting her go. It's like that first episode we get on the new series after Rose leaves, the Doctor, and it's as much an introduction to Donna as it is a remembrance of Rose. And you're like, ah, okay, so this isn't the first time, and it's no surprise that the classic companion that Rose finally gets to meet is Sarah Jane, because they're very much on the same level in that regard. But yeah, we're not going to hear about Sarah again for a while. <laughs> it did work, though, the sort of delayed reaction of, oh, I'm sorry my pet human's gone. Yeah, but now he has a new one, and maybe not one he chose. <laughs> and he also doesn't particularly want, kind of like he didn't yes. want the last one. Yeah, there's the line he says, I like lots of people, but I don't cart them about the universe with me. <laughs> it's like, has he met himself? <laughs> well, he has met himself a couple times, but... <laughs> yeah. But... Pertwee Doctor didn't particularly like Sarah at first. In fact, Pertwee Doctor didn't particularly like Joe at first. Or Liz. So this is the fourth time we've seen something like yeah, that. Yeah, come to think of it. He has gone through a string of companions being foisted upon him lately, hasn't he? If we go back even further, Zoe was a stowaway. Okay, they're all stowaways instead of recruits at first. Well, let's see. Who's the very first one who kind of forces their way into the TARDIS? Oh, Ben and Polly. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, whereas I think Stephen ends up there accidentally. Vicky, they take along because they want to. Dodo, why Dodo's there is anybody's business. <laughs> and Jamie, they take along because they're afraid he's going to get killed if he stays. So, yeah, there have been very few people he's actually chosen. And Allison, you probably remember having watched Legopolis with me at Chicago Tardis a few years back. The Doctor actually says, I've never chosen my own company. And he's talking specifically about himself as the fourth Doctor. Because, yeah, none of his companions are people that he chooses to take with him. Nor have we seen him turned down by any companions either. We haven't seen any unsuccessful recruitments. No, that's true. That's true. He hasn't asked anybody to come with him. And that's interesting because, well, yeah, you'll you'll see why that's interesting soon enough. Anything else you want to say about this one? I just have a question. There's a line where he says, dead as a Dalek. What does he mean by that? It's probably <laughs> just a throw in for the fans. It's it's definitely a nice variant on Dead as a Doornail. Yeah. Besides, he's killed enough of them. Yeah, but I, did, I didn't know if that was implying that he feels like they're dead and gone or... Yeah, I, did, I didn't quite know how to take it. So it's it's more just him kind of being cheeky. Yeah, even Tom Baker rattles it off as just, you know, a throwaway. I think that's okay. all it's meant to be. And, and kind of uh, emotionally dead, I guess. So, <laughs> Yes, because <laughs> heaven knows okay. they are. 
Well, that's not quite true. The Daleks are very full of emotion. It's just all negative. Well. Yeah, they're they're all full yeah. of anger, just like an English teacher at the end of a semester. Mm. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but enough about that. <laughs> oh, one other thing: on screen, we do not get to see Leela's reaction to the TARDIS interior, which is unfortunate because I like the fact that the last two companions, their stories have not shown us their the last three. Come to think of it, if we include Harry, but we haven't seen on screen their reactions to the interior. We haven't had seen with them in the interior where we get to see them interacting with it and this time we do so yeah the the next story will show her in the interior we finally do get to see it but we won't get it described for us so yeah six of one half dozen of another last quote i have written down is effective but distressingly crude yes <laughs> the uh kill them all strategy is a way of solving a problem very disappointed in zoanna <laughs> <laughs> shall we go to goodreads i think it's time all right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers involved with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.59 which is somewhat lower than Deadly Assassin, not surprising. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, though not as much this time. Sorry, everyone, but do keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon, who I never have to edit, gives his usual very short review, giving the book three stars and saying a nice, easy read, good introduction story for Leela, enjoy the way the story unfolded. Our Patreon Dave Davis also gives it three stars and says this book felt like a script-to-page job but was still enjoyable. I rarely like seeing the fourth wall being broken, and there doesn't seem to be a good reason for Baker to do it here, and the lines would have worked at least as well with him looking away from the camera. By the way, the, those first lines of the doctors delivered straight to camera. So that's what Dave's referring to. It's nice, too, not to have the doctor's face in stone, as I was never convinced by it and didn't realize it was meant to be him until it was stated. In a later story, there's a stone effigy of the sixth doctor, which coincidentally doesn't look much like Colin Baker, but more like the one in this story. Perhaps it's the curls, difficult to sculpt convincingly. Leela is treated well here, with no undermining of her character, which I had feared. Her speech is accurately portrayed with her lack of contractions, and it's only a shame that the other seven team didn't get that memo. One thing that's lost is the extent of the Tesh's deliberately ludicrous genuflections. A big part of the story on screen is the lampooning of religion, or at least its rituals. Nevertheless, it's a fun read, etc. Ah, Dave, you forgot to say it was a quick read. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Did he do it on the beach? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, right. It's a beach read. Oh yeah, I guess we we didn't bring up the fact of them doing the the forehead left shoulder right. No, we didn't. Oh, I actually loved that as a detail. That it's the gesture for checking the the vowels on the suit. Right, but what he's referring to is that when the Tesh greet the doctor, they bow constantly. And they just keep doing it. It's like those birds that you put in water mm. that dip their beaks in. 
Yeah. And yes. finally, Mel gives it four stars and says, This year I've really grown a proper appreciation for Leva. I have the vaguest memories of watching her when I was very small. In my mind, there's a distinct break between the Tom Baker, Leela, and Romana stories than his years with Hera, uh, Hera and Sari. Yeah, with Harry and Sarah, that's me, not her. I think it's just cause of childhood associations, but this year I went and watched all of her stories in order and just loved Leela. So it was nice to go back and read the novelization of Face of Evil. As most of Dick's novels, there really isn't a great deal added to the show, but one thing he does mention is that the Doctor realized he must have first come to Leela's planet when he was very newly regenerated and a bit confused, and that was why he couldn't remember it. Personally, I'd always thought that he'd just done so much, even in his fourth regeneration, that he wasn't able to keep track. The story reminds me a little of a Star Trek story, with the mad computers controlling everything. I like the divided society, even if it's so sparsely populated to be totally unbelievable. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to maintain generations with how few of them there are. But Leela is great, and it's a nice introductory story for her. Alright, so Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this one? I think I'm going to agree with uh, Damon and Dave. and I would give it a three-star rating. It's not the best thing we've ever read, but I think that it is... As they said, I got a good introduction to Leela, even though I did not see her as being the next companion. But I think that it really gives us an idea of who she is and it allows us to see where she's from and allows us to maybe see the type of companion she's going to be. And maybe the Doctor will have some kind of uh, effect on her, like you said earlier, to kind of tamp down some of her more uh, wild urges. So, yeah, I, I think that it was a pretty good story. I didn't have too many questions or bits of confusion once I actually started reading, given how confused I was initially after reading the back of the book. Okay, and Allison? go 3.25 which i know is too high and i'm not going to remember a thing about it tomorrow except for <laughs> Leela. and i think that she will turn out to be a great favorite of mine or maybe this is it maybe this is the romance <laughs> between me and Leela. um and maybe i just like the cover a lot but that yeah that's what i'll, I'll come away liking that character Okay. And as for me, I'd actually give this a 3.5 because it's not a perfect book, obviously. I think there are certain things that Dix could have expanded on that he didn't, such as Neva's character arc, which is sadly lacking. And other things such as, you know, how do the Tesh reproduce? That sort of thing. But the fact that he adds things that aren't in the script, like the Doctor's actual having gone there during his own first story, which, by the way, Terrence Sticks wrote. I was kind of surprised he didn't put in one of those as seen in Doctor Who and the Giant <laughs> Robot, now on sale at booksellers everywhere. But he does handle this story very well. And I myself think it's a very good story. Whenever you hear reviews of the story, they say it tends to be swallowed by the two stories around it. And that is true. It comes off of Deadly Assassin, which is well-regarded, and it goes straight into Robots of Death, which for some people is their favorite Doctor Who story. But it's the same author. I've got to say, it's not a promising title. Well, yeah, it isn't. And yet, well, you'll see. Actually, this story holds up very good on its own, so I would say 3.5. All right. Well, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss Terrence Stick's novelization of the not very promisingly titled The Robots of Death. <laughs> 
In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.